Continuing with our coverage and analysis of the primary election results, there was so much left unsaid last night after our three-hour-long analysis with Kip Christensen and Max Reimer from Kip and Max Save the World. You should check out their podcast, by the way. That's the name of it. You can find it at kipandmax.com and wherever fine podcasts are downloaded. Another podcast you should check out is Living Free. And uh, we have one of the co-hosts of that podcast on the line that we're going to touch base with here shortly, Jake Duesenberg, president of Action for Liberty, to get his hot takes on the results from Tuesday night. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Catch us streaming at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and your iHeartRadio app. We are here 9 to 11 weeknights. It's great having you with us. Appreciate it. You can check out past shows, check out our coverage from last night by doing a search for our for closing argument in your iHeartRadio app, and our channel will pop up for you. 651-989-5855 for your live and local reaction to uh, all the news of the day and yesterday. Brad Ullman taking those calls and producing the show. So let's get right to it. Let's bring Jake Duesenberg on the line. Appreciate you joining us tonight, Jake. Oh, awesome to be back, Walter. You got to be feeling pretty good right now. This is quite a vindication <laughs> for the grassroots, quite a vindication for the endorsement process and the the power of little guy activism, for lack of a better term. Yeah, it's grassroots conservatism beats big money establishment. There's no doubt about it. You got to look at it that way. I mean, Jeff Johnson ran a tremendous campaign very few people saw him win, and I mean, a lot of us did see the momentum going in the last week and mm-hmm. thought that this was a neck and neck, but certainly from the beginning, a lot of people were willing to write him off. Um, Tim Pawlenty, he's stuck in a campaign from 10 years ago that thought that could work, and with a big money advantage, I mean, $2 million raised versus Jeff, I think it was 300 and change. Uh, the, the small guy, the grassroots guy, ended up winning in a nine-point margin. That's just unbelievable. And every grassroots conservative around the state of Minnesota should rejoice in that. Yeah, it, it is quite a statement, quite a repudiation of conventional wisdom. And, of course, this happens two years after we had the national repudiation of conventional <laughs> wisdom that came in the form of Donald Trump. And increasingly, we had, we talked to John Gilmore last night live as things were coming in, as they were happening right after the news of the, the Jeff Johnson victory. And he pointed to this, and we, I don't think anybody's quite put their, their finger or their thumb on it quite yet, but there's an emergent pivot point that seems to be happening. Like if we get 10 years out and we look back, that we'll be able to identify more clearly what is changing, but something is definitely changing in terms of the way campaigns are run, the way they're perceived by the public, the way voters react. And you're right, the the perception definitely from from my perspective and and from uh Kip and Max last night and John Gilmore as well, was that Palenti was running on a very old playbook. And it seems to be a playbook that that was very attractive to the big money donors and that's why they were supporting him. But something's different. What in your view, first of all, do you even agree with that? And if so, what in your view is changing? 
Well, I think so. It's not just the statewide level. I mean, we see races like Eric Mortensen at fifty-five A, and I think it's the same there. It's when you're a real grassroots conservative, you're getting around. So, in a house district like Eric's, uh, he's door knocking a lot more than the establishment candidate. In terms of Jeff Johnson, it's not so much door knocking, but you can follow right. his campaign, and it actually goes back, I think, a year and a half ago, maybe more where he is going around the state of Minnesota. I mean, we've been on the road seeing Jeff Johnson in strange places. Um, and so that will all, it seems to me that's going to beat the establishment type uh, campaign that's driven by polling data and old, old ways of running campaigns because when you're actually out there in the district or around the state, you're actually connecting with these people more and you can adjust to the new flavor of the political atmosphere. And I think that's what happened last night is uh, they're not caving on principles, but they're molding the campaign to work with the current uh, electorate. And Jeff Johnson did a tremendous job. It was some, something to be really admired in future campaigns. They have to really look at what Jeff did. And then, of course, his campaign staff were unbelievable. I, I just feel like that was that was pretty much the quintessential campaign for a conservative right there. So the the whole Palinti operation seems to have been an effort to basically run a coup against the Republican Party of Minnesota. I mean, from the outset, before he even announced that he was running officially, there was this kind of whisper campaign that was taking place amongst the donor class of don't donate to the party, starve the party. And then the way he announced and, and tried to take air out of the sails of the state convention and, you know, everything seemed to be stacked or constructed in such a way as to undermine the party infrastructure and to, to there was some very weird rhetorical choices in terms of trying to portray a grassroots caucus attendees and delegates as party insider, you know, almost to like flip the script and flip the narrative of people like you and me are somehow the, the denizens of the smoke filled back room and, <laughs> and Tim Pawlenty, Washington DC lobbyist is the, is the good guy on the street, you know, knocking on doors and, and being the grassroots activist. It was very odd. I thought, what was your response to some of the rhetoric that the Pawlenty campaign was putting out there? Well, first of all, I've been vindicated because Bob Anderson says I'm an outsider, so I've been vindicated. <laughs> uh, I hope most people get that one. Uh, so, yeah, it, I don't know if the average primary voter can see that, but certainly when you dismiss the caucus, so for people that don't know, Plenty didn't even show, I'm sorry, not the caucus, the uh, endorsing convention in Duluth. For people that don't know, he completely didn't even show up to that convention. Mm -hmm. So that is angering uh, and upsetting a base of, what was it, 1,700 delegates, 1,800 delegates, I think, the most, the most active Republicans. And so you think these are the people that are actually going to work for these campaigns, and these are the people having conversations. And, you know, just like you and I who are, like, delegates, I don't know if you were this time around, but you've been delegate in the past, yeah. you also have your own sphere of influence, and you're talking about Jeff Johnson, so it's a multiplier effect. So I think that was the number one big mistake, critical error by Pelini, but I think his numbers show that he wasn't going to win it. But he just completely dissed the, 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 the pool of delegates. But number two was, uh, shortly after that convention, Donald Trump came here to Minnesota, actually in Duluth, and it was a very popular visit to the tune of thousands of people not even be able to get into it. Right. Jeff Johnson went up there, shook, I think, 12,000 hands. That's what he said. Tim, Tim Pawlenty didn't even show up. They right. just basically 
uh, stuck it to all the Donald Trump people. And, you know, that is, that's a crucial, a critical mistake that the Plenty campaign made right off the bat when it really comes to actually connecting with people. Uh, and I could go into expenditures and attack ads and all that stuff. I think Plenty made some errors at, but yeah. I think just when you start with that basis, and that was the onset of the campaign for Plenty because it really started in April. Uh, those were the first couple months of really good chances to connect with Minnesota primary voters, and, and he missed the ball on that. So there's a lot more going on last night than just the gubernatorial uh, primary contest. We had other contests as well. What do you make of this this entire ticket? Every single twelve for twelve in terms of endorsed statewide and congressional candidates uh, from the Republican Party that were endorsed by uh, grassroots activists through the delegate process all secured their primary victories last night. Uh, is this a good ticket coming out of the Minnesota Republican Party process? Yeah. So, um, I mean, the gubernatorial one was probably the most competitive. Um, we were obviously very happy that uh, Doug War, though, uh, who's you know one of the guys we've been working with for right. years, was successful. But he didn't have some valid challengers, um, and I don't think the Senate candidates did either. So, not a big surprise other than Jeff Johnson and those. And then I guess CD one was somewhat competitive, but. Uh, Boy, Jim Hagedorn really beat, I think it was a huge margin there. So that's not a surprise. Um, the, when you actually get down to uh, some of the House district races, there were two endorsements that were beaten, but those were those special kind of situations where, uh, so, so uh, Joyce Pepin in 34A, she, uh, she announced her retirement within a week uh, before the filing period deadline. Mm-hmm. And then Joe Hoppy as well. So people were already on the primary belt. So there were endorsing conventions, but that was kind of after the fact. Both people were going to be on the uh, ballot. So I kind of think that's a special situation. So otherwise, you're right. The endorsement was protected here. And I think that shows the strength of the big Republican because the RNC has come into Minnesota and made this very important, especially with CD8. I think CD1 too, but CD8 in particular. Um, and then I think you just see, uh, you know, we had bad caucus attend- attendance numbers this year, mm-hmm. but we were tracking at every convention we went to, all the way at the state convention, that the people that did go to caucus had great follow-through at conventions, and I probably are a great follow-through with helping out with these campaigns with grassroots activities. So I'm actually not that shocked that the endorsements were protected by by the party this year. As we head towards November, where are you going to be focusing your attention at Action for Liberty? So we're going to carry through with our legislative districts, you know, Shane Mecklin up in 15B. Uh, of course, Morton Sitton, we still want to protect. And then, uh, of course, we have other camps we've held in the past. You know, Jeremy Muntz is a good case in, exa- case in point. So, um, And then we're, we're exploring possibly going on the road here. Uh, we really want to see... Keith Allison get beat. I mean, to think of that kind of extremist getting yeah. into the top law enforcement position in Minnesota, we just can't have that happen. I don't think there's higher stakes in this upcoming election than that one because on one side you got this extremist who's actually pretty dangerous as an attorney general, yeah. and on the other end you got a constitutional constitutional guy uh, that could really we could really benefit from having him in that position and i think it's been 46 years since we've had an attorney general that was a republican so that's the stakes are high now and so we're going to be looking at that race too 
Yeah, it's funny. You know, we we often make fun of the the perennial claim that this is the most important election of your lifetime. You know, that's something that's always said by every candidate and every party official every single cycle. But in this case, I mean, you could make a, a fairly meritorious case that this election, if not the most important in your lifetime, is certainly on the short list of maybe the top three, top five in your lifetime in terms of what's at stake. You know, you're potentially looking at uh, redistricting coming up and, and uh, you, you just looking at the candidates, like you say, comparing and contrasting Doug Wardlow to Keith Ellison. It's really important that people uh, get out there and, and make their voices heard if they believe in these values of uh, individual rights and, and the founding principles of this country. Yeah, I mean, I don't totally agree with that because I, I like to be real honest with people. I mean, we hear that all the time. Well, it's the most important election. Mm -hmm. In terms of uh, Minnesota legislative races, I look at it as a series of elections before we get the numbers that will actually accomplish something. And we're doing very well, but we're still early in our stages. But yeah, I mean, in that race with Allison and Doug, I mean, boy, if you're not scared about the idea of yeah. of, of Keith Allison being the top law enforcement officer, if that doesn't motivate you, I don't know what can. <laughs> appreciate your insights, Jake Duesenberg. Appreciate you taking some time out of your evening to join us, and uh, we'll catch up with you later. Take care, Walter. Yep, you too. 651-989-5855 will take your comments when we return, and, and you know, there's so much to get to. Uh, it'll be interesting if we're able to hit half of it. Closing argument, my name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, Twin Cities News Talk.com. You want to chime in on the primary results from last evening? You can do so here on Closing Argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, 651-989-5855 is the number to join us. Let's start with Chris in Minneapolis. Welcome to the program. Hey, Walter. Hey. Um, I've got a question for you. All right. On the program this morning, they're in the same studio you are. There's Sam, the producer, mm -hmm. and her Trump pen was on the floor desecrated and you were listed as a possible suspect. Oh yeah. <laughs> I just wanted to ask you, did, did you do it? You're a stand up guy. I don't think you did it, but I have to ask. No, I did not. First of all, I'm not that petty. Secondly, I would never do anything like that to Sam. And thirdly, I would never do anything like that period. So no, I just wanted to, wanted to review a little bit. Yeah, sure. But, no, I look. Right. I understand why I was on the list of suspects. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, it's what are they? What's the criteria? Uh, motive, opportunity, and something, something. I don't. I don't know what the three things are. But yes, motive and opportunity were certainly there. So I understand. Appreciate the and call. Means. <laughs> and means. There All you right. go. Yes, means. I definitely have the means to break a pen. All right. Appreciate that call. All right. Let's go to Jeff in Rosemont. Welcome to the program. Hi, Walter. Hey. I want to offer a little bit of a counterpoint to the exuberance over yesterday's primary. I mean, you know me, I'm a party guy. Yep. Uh, you had Jake Duesenberg on. Yep. Uh, Jake and I worked on a campaign together, and I'm thrilled for Eric Mortensen. But I got to tell you, I'm, I'm very worried about the state of the general election. To win statewide, you really need three things, uh, charisma and name ID, uh, grassroots campaign, and money. Mm -hmm. And it's the last one that... Uh, we lost big on last night. And my fear is down ticket, if we don't have any recognition at the statewide level, we could get to a, a place where 
suddenly we lose the house and then you mentioned redistricting that could be a real issue for us sure I, I absolutely understand that. My question is, and I did see your Facebook post to this effect uh, earlier today, so I, I get a broader sense of the direction you're coming at it from. And it sounds like it's very in line with where Kip Christensen was last night as he was helping us analyze the results. He was a Tim supporter, and uh, and he, he took this this pretty hard for many of the same reasons that you're articulating, the, the broader implications in terms of statewide electability down the ticket and and uh, more, you know, institutional um, integrity stuff. And so my question is, if if the stakes are really that high, and I agree with you, they are, then why is money an issue? Like, why why are there people who were willing to support Tim Pawlenty with that money who are not willing to support Jeff Johnson? I don't understand how Tim Pawlenty is easier to sell to Minnesota voters than Jeff Johnson is. Yeah, and I think uh, the challenge is you're looking at it from a, a pure voter perspective. Um, the donor class is very different. You know, if you take a guy like Kurt Bills on paper, he's amazing, right? Mm-hmm. The reason why the donor class wouldn't engage is because they only want to go with people who they know win. And the challenge with Jeff is he's lost twice statewide. Mm-hmm. Now, look, I love Jeff. I like his politics. I like his approach. I like his personality. I think the challenge is he doesn't speak to the donor class. And without money... You don't need money to win an election, but without it, you certainly would lose one. Well, sure, I agree with that. Money is definitely a, a key component. Now, of course, we we just saw in the primary results themselves an example of how you can overcome the limitations of, of being grossly outraised. But I also suspect that that doesn't necessarily translate to a, a general election contest quite as much as it does with a primary uh, yeah, you have a lot less voters on the primary side. of Sure. And, and you have kind of the party purists. I mean, I've been saying for a while now, Walls is the candidate that likely will win Minnesota. And I believe that he has the advantage going into this, conte- uh, this contest. We will see over the next couple of weeks whether the RDA keeps their ad buy. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm concerned that they won't. I think we will also see whether or not outside money comes into the race. I think with Doug Wardlow, we'll see some outside money coming in from the broader D.C. groups only because there's enough people that dislike Keith Ellison. Sure. But, I'm, but I certainly am worried about the state of down ticket if you don't have that strong financial backing behind you, which we haven't had since 2010. Yeah, you know, it'd be interesting to get. I'd, I'd love to reach out to uh, Howard Root. I know he was a, a Palenti supporter, and, and uh, me and him see eye to eye philosophically to get that donor perspective. Because you're right, I am looking at it from the perspective of a voter, the perspective of an activist. And frankly, I, I don't understand why, if that much is at stake, which I agree it is, you would basically succumb to defeatism and say, well, I'm not going to put my, my money towards the effort to actually save the state. I mean, maybe it's easier to move. Maybe that's the, the way they're thinking. I don't know. But Well, and for me, it's, it's somewhat depressing, frankly, because like I said, Jeff is a good candidate. He is a good person. I think that it is difficult to raise money for him only because uh, the track record is not good. Mm-hmm. And that's really unfortunate. But the donor class, you know, again, a lot of these folks are corporate, and they're like, you know, we only want to select people who we know have a good right. track record. Look, I, I understand the the perspective of you want to put your money on a good bet right because it's it's yours and you're not going to spend it frivolously uh no matter how much of it you have that's how you got that money in the first place is by spending it wisely i understand that calculation Uh, i just you know it 
if there really truly is that much at stake, yeah, I, I could say it again, but you get the point. I appreciate the call, Jeff, and the thoughts as always. Let's talk to CJ in St. Louis Park. Welcome to the program. Thank you for allowing me to get in on this on this conversation with you. No problem. I listen to your show over and over from time to time. I'm just getting off from work, so I, have, I turn your show on when I'm driving home. Mm-hmm. And I heard you made a comment earlier about Keith, Keith Ellison that I just don't think is true. Okay. As far as him filing lawsuits against Donald Trump, and that's all he's going to do. I don't think you have any proof to substantiate that. Well, I mean, first of all, I don't recall saying that particularly. I don't recall saying it tonight. But regardless, he has said that. Like, he has said, he offered as the the primary rationale why he's taking this remarkable step. Of, I mean, consider what he's giving up. He's the deputy chair of the DNC. And he's all, I know, I know you know that. I'm just recapping in order to make this point. He's the deputy chair of the DNC. He has national prominence. He's an elected congressman in an incredibly safe district where he could continue to remain in Congress for as long as he wants the seat. It's his. He owns it. He's putting all of that aside to take a, a massive risk on a statewide election to be attorney general in Minnesota. And when asked why he would do that, he said it was to stand up to Donald Trump. And how do you do that in the position of attorney general? You file lawsuits. I, I don't know well, how, how else to interpret that. Okay, but he also said other things, too. I remember what he said, what, what you're saying, but he's also dissatisfied with some of the things that's going on in the state. Well, in terms of consumer protection or what? What? Well, in terms of the way the law has been handling a lot of the cases that's been going on between the Minnesota people and the police departments and sure. the things that the attorney general has to take, take a, uh, you know, take a seat to. Yeah, I, I have, saying, I have no doubt that. Said more than that. Sure. No, I don't discount saying, that at all. I mean, the, the attorney general's job is way more than just attacking the president. I agree. I, 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 I don't. And I think that he would be a good advocate for things here. And if he was, if he's willing to take that kind of risk, and he could lose, and I, and I sure. agree. When he, when, he, when he made that stand, I guess he's saying, you know what, if I don't win, I've been in the game long enough to where it doesn't matter no more. And maybe sure. He just, you know, maybe he just don't want to be no, no longer be a career politician, which is okay with me. Well, he and loses, he loses. yeah, we had a caller last night who, who asked the question of why is Keith Ellison doing this? And, you know, the, the answer, the speculative answer that I gave is because he's a true believer. He actually does believe uh, in his, his ideology, his ideology and his worldview. And, you know, he says what he means in terms of what he would like to accomplish and he's willing to put his money where his mouth is. I disagree with him on virtually everything, but I do appreciate that aspect of his personality. Okay, well, thank you for letting me get my two cents in. Yep, no problem. Appreciate it. You know, all right, thank you. Yep, take care. 651-989-5855. We'll talk to Jamar when we return. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Streaming, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com, and on your iHeartRadio app, we're here 9 to 11 weeknights. Appreciate you joining us. 
the number to contribute, 651-989-5855. Brad Omlin takes those calls and produces the show. The focus of our analysis, understandably, being a conservative talk radio station of the primary election results from last evening, has primarily been with the Republicans and the GOP contest and the gubernatorial contest, but the Democrats had uh, quite a bit of drama as well, and uh, here to help us analyze that and chime in on some Republican stuff as well is Jamar Nelson from the Black Republican Black Democrat program, which you can catch over this very air on Saturdays at 6 p.m. Welcome to the show, Jamar. Hey, Walter, how are you today? Doing good. How are you feeling after last night? Well, a bit dejected. I mean, I honestly thought that uh, Richard was the the best candidate, and, uh, you know, we got a, quite a, a shellacking last night, and uh, I'm kind of glad that I didn't speak to you last night because I wasn't sober, and you probably would have had to bleed <laughs> last night. Well, I appreciate your discretion. That uh, that probably wouldn't have been the best idea. It is tough. I, I got to say, you know, that we we witnessed a, a lot of emotion from from folks who did not prevail uh, last night, you know, regardless of their their party affiliation. And it is tough when you put your your heart and soul into a campaign to to see it come to an end, other than the one you desired. But uh, you know, there's always a next year, next cycle. So. Well, no doubt. Uh, I, 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 again, I, we did, as you just said, you said you put it adequately that the fact that we put our heart, blood, sweat, and tears into this campaign, you know, um, this was the highest role I had in a campaign. I've worked in plenty of campaigns, but this is the highest role I've had, position I've had, uh, as senior strategist. Um, I think we needed a little bit more time, um, to penetrate, you know, the minority vote. Uh, I think that that was pivotal, especially the results of last night. I mean, Minneapolis just, Absolutely, it was astronomical the way that they showed up and voted. Mm-hmm. I think I've I, I seen Jennifer Carnahan's uh, post today talking about she's you know last night result makes her think that the state of turned red. Well, then she obviously uh, drinking what I had last night because <laughs> I think last night's results show that Democrats are furious, and not only two hundred thousand more Democrats came out and voted than than that of Republicans. The enthusiasm was, uh, I think, a 200, uh, 200.4.1, um, uh, result better than they did four, than we did four years ago. So I think that, and I said it on this show, I watch, and I think you, you know, you agree with me when I said that I thought primary was going to be huge. I thought Democrats were going to show up like they did. So there's no surprise that the results of how Democrats came out there. Fewest with Trump. And anybody with R's behind their name, and they want to put their candidate in there to beat whatever opposing Republican it is. Well, and there was a lot to chime in on if you were a Democrat last night. In terms, you know, there was a lot of contested seats, a lot of open seats, a, a, a lot of uh, chaos, and there was a spectrum of perspective, you know, within the confines of Democratic ideology in terms of what you could vote for. And to that effect, Politico has a story. The headline they chose was "Midwest Democrats Answer to Trump." is white, conventional, and boring. And they cite, amongst other th- results from last night, the prevailing gubernatorial campaign of Tim Walls, uh, who I guess they say fits that description of white, conventional, and boring. Yeah. How <laughs> how do you feel about Tim Walls being the gubernatorial uh, in- nominee for this year from the Democrats? Uh, truthfully, I, 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 had, um, I did vote for Walls, but I was uh, leaning more towards the... Uh, Swanson Nolan ticketed, but then that controversy started with right. Lori and with Nolan, so I decided that that obviously wouldn't be a, a wise choice. 
after actually speaking to the young man too, he's going to be on my show in a couple of weeks that she that uh, started all these accusations. Um, look, I don't know. We, you know, it's Slim Pickens. I don't know. I thought Aaron, I Aaron and Aaron I thought were, were was a really good city ticket, but right. I think state one. Yeah. <laughs> You know, statewide, we knew that they weren't going to do anything. And so I think if we want to be competitive, I think that the best choice was Walsh because we've got to do well in rural Minnesota. And between him and Nolan are the, the, the two most popular Democrats in rural Minnesota that could at least carry 5 to 8% up there. Uh, and I think that that's uh, why most people picked him. I think Keith's win last night showed that um, two things, um, that black, black folks are pissed off and thought that it was really vicious to release uh, these accusations two days before the election. And I think um, Democrats also show that there also is a is a strong united front, even when you're looking like siblings uh, fighting amongst each other. So in terms of, because I haven't heard your perspective on the Keith Ellison situation and the, these allegations, uh, which now that, now that the primary is over, the DNC has said they're looking into it, whatever that means. So do you just dismiss out of hand any sort of legitimacy to these accusations? Are you keeping the jury out, or what's your position? I am keeping the jury out, watch it, but I do think it's a looks like a, a, a look like some cockamamie mess. I mean, the young the the, the accuser worked for the same lady that's running we're running against Keith. How coincidentally they released the charges two days before mm-hmm. the primary. Um, the son, coincidentally, was the one that dropped it, and the mom turned around and said, oh, I'm just going to defend my son. Um, listen, I've heard these type of accusations about Keith, so I'm not going to rule out it. You know what? And me being a father of two females, watch, I always hate to dismiss any female that says that she was abused physically, mm-hmm. mentally. So mm-hmm. I really hate to dismiss it, so I won't do that. I just think that it was totally playing politics to have released these charges, these, excuse me, these accusations. You know, right before the primary was supposed to come out. And so I think that that was in bad taste because I think this happened in 2016. So if you truly had a problem, these accusations were serious, why, where's the police calls? And then all of a sudden when NPR pressed about the video, that mysteriously now is gone too. So to me, it reeks of uh, political uh, uh, BS. And I think black folks showed that they uh, were united with behind Keith and what Keith can do. Appreciate your perspective, Jamar, and uh, we'll chat with you when there's more to talk about. Have a good night. Thanks, Walter. All right. Let's uh, squeeze in Anne in Minneapolis. You've been holding for quite a while. Appreciate you doing so. Thank you. Thank you. You know, in response to one of your earlier callers who talked about Jeff Johnson Mm -hmm. having lost a couple of election tries and also not being able to bring in the big money. You know, I was thinking back to John Klein. He lost two or three times to Bill Luther, and it's that dogged determination. Plus, each loss built up his name recognition, and it showed how hardworking he was and how willing he was to really not let that put him down and just keep working right at it. I I think it's almost a plus because it shows how just strong he is to stay on course and not let a defeat just wipe him out. And look at all the big money that came in for Paul Enti. How much good did that do? Not to mention Hillary. Look at all the money that was spent on her. And people just said, you know what, we don't like your message. And with Paul Enti, um, I thought the way he just summed his nose at people who really worked hard to get a good candidate, I, I just thought that was so distasteful. I think- that really... 
that just set me back on him a uh, lot, even though there were many things about him that I've liked in the past. Sure. I, that was just a real turn off to me. So I say, Jeff, keep going. I think it's great that he's willing to try again. All right. I appreciate the perspective. And yeah, I have to agree. And we'll, we'll go into my takeaways from the, the primary when we come back to the other side of the break. But amongst them is exactly what Ann was saying there in terms of the, the, the biggest miscalculation of the Palenti campaign was basically campaigning against the very voters who you're asking to support you. Well, I think that comparing John Klein to Jeff Johnson is apples to oranges because one was a congressional race and one is a governor's race. And if you look at CD1 this year, uh, Jim Hagedorn finally won his primary and he's going to win the general election. But he's been running for that seat against Walls for the past, what, 10 years? since mm-hmm. Basically since Walls has... Run, been running for the seat as well and so there are different factors at play in every congressional seat and in every across every jurisdiction so i don't think that that is correct i mean and candidates who need the money are the ones who have the least of it and like people maybe use trump as an example of somebody who didn't need donors money but he was also independently wealthy. He didn't have to do the traditional lean to the green with your speech because you want to pander to the wealthy. Um, it's well known that Jeff Johnson did pretty paltry in terms of fundraising, and he's going to need that to reach the average voter. I know, especially come you know after the state fair when they need TV ads at 10 p.m., uh, that money is going to matter, and just logistics of running a campaign, it, it, it it's going to matter, and uh, Republicans are at a distinct disadvantage. I don't think that, you know, what what Jeff Johnson makes up for in electability, Pawlenty had in money, but neither is, but what each candidate is lacking could do them into. Yeah, I take your point in terms of their... And it, it always seems like it's like this, where we wish we could put together a Frankenstein monster of particular candidates... Uh, in order to get the best of every world, unfortunately, we we don't have that uh, that ability. Uh, but yeah, it's definitely look. It's an uphill battle. There's no doubt about it. It's an uphill battle for Republicans in this state all the time. That said, there is an unprecedented opportunity here with the the effect that Keith Ellison alone, his presence on the statewide ticket, particularly amidst controversy, has to mobilize people out state. And and to 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 bring a different kind of energy to this contest, I look. I'm I'm really bad at predicting electoral outcomes, so I try to stay away from it. But but if if I was going to try, I would not be doing so with any sort of confidence this year. Twin Cities News Talk, M eleven thirty one zero three five FM, TwinCitiesNewsTalk dot com. So we had a call earlier this hour from Jeff who took issue with our, our analysis or our enthusiasm, at any rate, regarding Jeff Johnson's victory over Tim Pawlenty in the gubernatorial primary last evening. And, you know, he took the position that this is bad for Republicans overall in terms of the, the statewide down ticket ballot and also, you know, potential repercussions for redistricting and what have you. And, you know, I don't disagree with the the nuts and bolts of that analysis, and I understand that opinion. But here's what I 
don't understand, what I have difficulty getting my head around. If that's really what you're concerned about, and I'm not, you know, trying to call into question the sincerity of Jeff. I know he's sincere. But if you're really concerned about the the effect that losing this year is going to have on the future of the Republican Party in Minnesota and the future of conservatism, if you really think that that much is at stake, and if you really believed that Tim Pawlenty was our savior, that he was going to save us from all that, then why did that campaign choose to adopt tactics and strategy that was obviously and deeply flawed? And and this is kind of my first takeaway from last night, is that the Palinti campaign, their, their primary miscalculation was that they somehow thought they were going to be able to secure victory in the primary by running against the very voters that they needed to support them. From the outset, the plan was let's let's undermine the party, let's cut off donor support for the state party, let's do everything we can to take the wind out of the sails of the caucus and endorsement process, let's not attend the state convention, let's not go up there when Trump visits Minnesota and and make a showing. Let's let's pretend as though and Let's engage in this rhetoric that casts all of the participants in that process from the caucus all the way up through the convention, the the grassroots activists. Let's cast them as somehow being party insiders who are the establishment and are out of touch. But then ask those same people who were vilifying in that manner to come out and support us. It's almost as if they believed that there was this whole group of Republican primary voters that were, one, not involved in that process at all, and two, completely ignorant of how it works. And I I don't know, if, if that was the presumption, I don't know on what they were basing that, but obviously they were wrong, right? And it occurs to me that it, it would have cost them nothing if they truly believed this, if they truly believed that the stakes were so high that Tim Pawlenty had to be the guy and that and that he could save us from all the, the things that we're now inevitably going to endure as a result of losses that are going to come because Tim Pawlenty's not the, the, the nominee, he's not on the general election ballot, why wouldn't you take a stab at securing the support of the base, of the core? Why wouldn't you go to the convention and be honest with them the way that Mike McFadden was a few years back when he went to the convention and said, look, I'm going to be in the primary regardless, but I, I respect you guys and I'm seeking your endorsement. I, I hope you can give it to me. But, you know, if you don't, I'm, I'm being honest with you. I'm going to run to a primary, but that that's my plan and, and I respect you guys. And lo and behold, he got the endorsement. Amazing how that works, right? When you show a little bit of respect show a little bit of humility, but there was just such hubris involved in the way the Palenti campaign approached the, their this whole task of trying to secure uh, a primary victory that it, in a lot of ways, it's not surprising that things turned out the way that they did. A few other takeaways. I think the, the, on the, the complete trouncing of figures such as A.J. Kern up in CD6 running against Tom Emmer and uh, Bob Anderson, friend of the show, who uh, was seeking to to be the candidate for U.S. Senate running against, I believe it was, uh, I can't remember if it was Amy Klobuchar or Tina Smith, one of the two. It indicates the limitations of the anti-establishment rhetoric. There seems to be this sense 
that because Donald Trump did what he did in 2016, that now all you have to do is be a, quote, outsider, unquote, and talk about how horrible the establishment is and that you're somehow going to be able to magically win elections regardless of the fact that you're not raising any money, regardless of the fact that you're not doing what successful campaigns do in order to win, and that's just simply not true. Well, it's also because those people don't actually know how to do that. They're not libertarians. They're conservatives. You're, you're talking about in terms of AJM? It being anti-establishment. They oh, don't actually know how well, to do that. But see, anti-establishment's not an exclusively libertarian term. There, there's a True. Whole, you know, th- but we're the only ones who know how to do it correctly. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. <laughs> the, the, the last thing I'll say is that in order to prevail, because I think it is an uphill battle, but in order to prevail in November, the GOP is going to need to be bold. They're going to need to get out in front and make bold statements and do it unapologetically and put some fight into this race. Closing argument, we'll be back after the break. 651-989-5855-TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130-1035 FM, closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, streaming at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and on your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. Appreciate you joining us. 651-989-5855 is the number to contribute to the program. Brad Ullman takes those calls and produces the show. We are continuing our reaction and analysis to the primary election results from last night. Let's go to your live and local phone calls. Let's start with Anthony in St. Paul. Welcome to the program. Anthony, I know you're out there. Anthony, going once, going twice. All right, we'll go with Dan in Plymouth. Welcome to the program. Hello. Hi there. Hey, I was at the rally last night. Which one? It was uh, Jeff Johnson. Oh, okay. Tell us all about it. Pardon me? Tell us all about it. Yeah, it was very, it was a very energetic um, environment, obviously a lot of electricity in the air. Mm-hmm. I had the gut feeling yesterday afternoon that that he was going to win, and mostly because out of everybody I, I text or called on my contact list on my cell phone, 95% of them, 50 to 1, were voting for Jeff Johnson. And I thought, but I actually was surprised that Tim Pelletti got as many votes as he did. And I think they were pretty isolated, certainly to the Egan area, probably where he lives, and one part of northern Minnesota. Most every county, Jeff Johnson won. But, you know, nine points isn't an extraordinary distance, but it's a significant distance considering, like you said, he didn't have a lot of money compared to Tim Pelletti. Yeah. But one thing that's not really talked about is that Tim Pelletti got, I think, at least $1 million from 300 donors. And his connections in the banking industry, being a bank lobbyist for five years, and he's a good guy, and he's a smooth talker, and he, um, but he's the consummate, um, how can I say, not consummate, he is a swamp creature, <laughs> in my opinion. Um, I know a guy that served with him in Congress prior to him being governor, and he tried to force some legislation down their throats, and his reason was we need to... We need to, you know, do this for our donors and uh, talk about offending a group of men and, and women in a room. It's like, this is not why we're here. Mm-hmm. So, 
you know, he's really good at making uh, influential connections, whether it be John McCain or whomever. And to see him in the debate, in the Farm Fest debate, I just saw it on online. He was so proud that he was championing taxpayer subsidies of green energy mandates. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And he didn't have the message. He didn't have a major... Yeah. Jeff has the... I mean, I I know your assistant there, or the guy you're on the show with. Um, Jeff has My name's the Brad. conservative message. Well, I'm sorry, Todd? We're, we'll go ahead with assistant. We can just call him the assistant from here on No. Out. I'm sorry. <laughs> Forgive me. I didn't have to post enough. Um, but, you know, the money will come in now. You know, I think after, when he when he ran against uh, Mark Aiden the last time, I think he had $2 million come in after the endorsement, or after the primary, I should say. Mm-hmm. So I believe the money will be there. And if, if Tim Pawlenty is has any sense of, no, of, I don't know, honor or nobility or really wants to bring unity to the party, right. all the money he has, I'm hoping a considerable amount of that will go to Jeff Johnson's campaign. Yeah, I mean, again, I don't know why. Like, if you really believe all the rhetoric of I had to be the one to run in order to save us from the the Democrats, if you really believe that the stakes are that high, I don't know why you wouldn't put your money behind the candidate who's on the ballot. I mean, do do you want all the horrors of Democratic control and redistricting to to sweep the state and to have repercussions for generations to come? Or are you going to do what you can in order to keep that from happening. And, and, you know, it's obviously it's a, yeah, go ahead. I mean, where, where do you think Jeff Johnson's missing it? You know, I I don't, I can't think of one area where he doesn't have the common sense wise, you know, what I'll, what I'll attribute to the wisdom of God. God, so you know, I think God. I mean, because I think of his of his Judeo Christian foundational. Yeah. No, listen, principle. I I I know Jeff. I've you know, I had coffee with him. I've talked to him a number of times, and I I judge him to be entirely sincere and intellectually honest, and a, a true believer who believes the right things. But if if I'm gonna offer constructive criticism yeah, of yeah, Jeff, right the the constructive criticism would be this: it's it's that. You need to have, particularly in this political moment, you need to have a warrior spirit. You going. Do. You know what I'm saying? Like, uh, you, you need agree, to yeah. fight. And Jeff, dis- despite his sincere efforts to convey that sense of, I'm going you know, I'm to get after it, 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 ha- it doesn't quite engage, at least in my perception, it hasn't quite engaged yet, where I've, I've seen him in a moment where I've, caught fire where i've been excited about what he's going to be able to do in say a debate or when he actually gets that money and gets on a campaign ad i'm I'm concerned that we're going to see the same kind of sort of generic consultant laden ads and engagement that have dragged down uh, gubernatorial campaigns including his prior one in the past you know i think you're right i remember when, when he was on some talk radio show i called in prior to knowing him and I said, it sounds like you have a little more fire in your belly than you did last time. And I think I didn't mean that to be insulting. Right. I do sense that he has that more, much more so now. I mean, did you have a chance to watch the NPR debate? I didn't. I have not watched any of the debates. You should see that. Okay. I'll check it out. I'll go. Right I'm sure at, it's on it YouTube or something. Right at Tim Pawlenty, right in his face. I mean, mm-hmm. not in his face, in a rude way. Right. <laughs> but he was very sharp. Yeah, I mean, I look, you you really turn up that heat though. You have to wall. do it. 
you have to do it within the bounds of your own personality, right? Like right. he, he exactly. it, it would come off as insincere if he tried to be Donald Trump-esque about it, right? And, and yeah. that's that's just not who he is. But you have to be, listen, we are dealing with moral issues. When we talk about yeah. the, 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 the state of education uh, in Minnesota, when we talk yeah. about taxes and spending, when we talk about the, yeah. the, the role and scope of government in your life, all of these are moral issues, and the left has profoundly unjust and immoral positions and wants to make it worse. If you yeah. can't get fired up about that, and if you can't make other people fired up about that, then that's a deficiency in your campaign. And I hope that you're right about Jeff. I will check out that debate. I appreciate your call, Dan. All right, buddy. Yep. Let's talk to Tom in Eden Prairie. Welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me on again. And uh, I'm not going to use the assistant word because Brad sees the calls, and I'll never get on if he's the assistant. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm glad you have, you know, reasons that aren't self-serving at all. Exactly. But you're you're going to steal my take here, so go ahead. I'm too proud to admit it. Say, um, you know, I couldn't agree with you more in the conversation and saying, you know, Jeff Johnson, and it's time to be bold. Yeah. So... I guess let's ask the big one. Is it time to embrace legalization of marijuana? I Look, I, I agree with Brad's. And by the way, th- this has been Brad's point for months, going back months, that we you need to not be boring. You need to not be vanilla. And particularly in the context of the, this Politico assessment that the Democrats have purposely chosen to be boring and conventional. And, you know, they tacked on white because apparently that's important to them. But, you know. There is an opportunity here to, especially when you're going into it as an underdog, to be experimental, to be bold, and to take positions that are risky. And I think that what you submit as a possibility of taking an aggressive position on uh, marijuana, I would certainly be for it. Honestly, I don't see, I mean, yes, there's a downside there is, you know, Republican. I would I would call myself a reformed Republican. I'm clearly a libertarian. I just mm-hmm. didn't understand it until I started listening to you guys speak. Now I get it. But, you know, so there is a risk when I look at my parents and I look at there's a generation that, that might be very turned off. Mm-hmm. What's their alternative? They're going to look at Tim Walsh. Now you're thinking like a politician. <laughs> right. But here's the thing. But here's the thing, right? I look at my nieces and nephews, and I look at the generation, the 20s and the 30-year-olds, mm-hmm. and, you know, they're not, they're not cast. They're not cast one way or the other. And, you know, if they can look at Jeff Johnson and they can see that he's not grandma and grandpa, right. you know, this guy. This ain't I, your I daddy's Republican. Pull, right, yeah. Pull a lot of these votes in. Right. No, I think there's an opportunity there. I appreciate the call, Tom. Republican baby boomers are completely hypocritical when it comes to the mar- the legalization of marijuana issue. I remember last year when I went to the uh, Roger Waters concert at the XL Energy Center, it was blatantly anti-Trump. And, I mean, it was awesome. Like, it was an amazing artistic display of anti-Trump. It's the best I've ever seen uh, from any artist or commentator. Mm-hmm. But anyways, the... People who were offended by Roger Waters' anti-Trump display were the same people smoking weed, listening to Pink Floyd when they were my age. So don't come at me and tell me that, oh, we can't legalize marijuana. That would cause social problems. Well, guess what you were doing? <laughs> smoking weed. Don't, don't, don't be hypocritical about it. 
Let's talk to Mike in Farmington. Welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for taking my call, Walter. Yep. And, you know, since Brad brought it up, you know, hey, let's legalize weed already. I mean, come on. Yeah, I, we've talked about this off and on since we first came on the air. It's been, you know, about 18 months at this point. And I've yet to hear from a caller who aggressively and vehemently was like, no, we can't do that. It seems as though the the moment has arrived where someone in a position like gubernatorial candidate in a statewide election could take this position and in, endure the storm and, in fact, probably pick up support from independents. But you touched on something earlier that triggered a couple of memories with, uh, you're speaking about the Jeff Johnson? Yeah. And I recall for Ronald Reagan, things weren't really going well for him. And there was a moment when he was campaigning when he basically he said, Sir, I paid for this microphone. In other words, the alpha male showed up. Right. What, what's lacking is this kind of ferocity and tenacity mm-hmm. of your position. You don't have to be obnoxious, right. but you can be strong and forthright. Yeah. And I think when people see that, uh, you know, and to Trump's credit, he has that alpha male thing going for him where he's not going to be pushed around. Yes, this is true. And, and I, that's definitely, I think, a pillar of why people support him is because they appreciate that. They appreciate, especially in a context where we're getting kicked around all the time, the names we get called and the the horrible accusations directed at conservatives and Republicans and libertarians and anybody who is right of Che Guevara, you know, is going to be cast in the worst possible light. We're looking for somebody to defend us, to fight for us, to to take it uh, to to the other side with uh, venom and vigor and trump has definitely met that market need i appreciate your call mike will talk with barry in st paul when we return 651-989-5855 closing argument my name is walter Hudson, twin cities news talk am 11 30 1035 fm We're going to get into talking about money here momentarily on Closing Argument. My name's Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, 651-989-5855. Continuing to get live and local reaction to last night's primary election. Let's cut over to Barry in St. Paul. Welcome to the program. So my whole opinion about this is, honestly, inside of Minnesota, you're not going to beat the Democrats at least not on a statewide election, unless you can fracture the Democratic voting block and and make them fight with each other, kind of like the whole Bernie Sanders situation did, where you disenfranchise a chunk of them. That's the only way that Republicans have a legitimate chance of winning, because you can talk about issues all you want, but if you have an R behind your name, there's a whole huge group of people that will not vote for you. Mm-hmm. So it basically comes down to the the Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump dynamic where you're looking to get a lot of people who just don't show up that otherwise would have voted for the Democrat and hope you can prevail that way. Yeah, I don't see it any other way. And I think the way you do that is by by finding an issue that, that splits the party. You, you use the people on the Black Lives Matter side. 
and then and then have outside groups run ads that speak to that. You know, that's the only way to do it. Hmm. I don't, and I know that sounds underhanded, but how else do you have a chance? You know what I mean? I uh, I appreciate the perspective. Very appreciate your call as always. You know, I I don't know if I'd call it underhanded. I mean, that's politics, and increasingly, I find myself embracing the notion that you know, if, despite the fact that I advocate for a public policy that would affect a condition of liberty and get us to a point where we eliminate force in people's lives. The fact remains that political processes, by their very nature, are confrontational, they're adversarial, and it is a contest. It is, it is a question of force from a certain per- perspective, a certain point of view, political force, May, uh, getting t- mobilizing. You know, I mean, people talk about it in terms that are usually applied to warfare, mobilization, ground game, you know, strategy, and what have you. And uh, it, it, it's appropriate to consider all your options when you're trying to to secure victory, particularly against people who will weld the club of the state in order to to bludgeon you and take your stuff. That's what the left is all about. Let's go to Henry in Minneapolis. Welcome to the program. Good evening, Walter. It's nice to be on with you again. Sure. Um, first of all, I'd just like to begin with a little bit of a shout-out to Norm Coleman. Um I uh, wish the former St. Paul mayor and the former U.S. Senator uh, Godspeed in his uh, health struggle. Uh, I think you probably know that yes. uh, his cancer has uh, returned, and so uh, my thoughts are with him. And uh, that does lead me into the point I wanted to make here. Other than uh, Senator Coleman, do you know uh, how many uh, people have won statewide? Um, excuse me, how many Republicans? Uh, have won statewide uh, since 1994. Well, he'd be the only one, wouldn't he? Uh, well, there was Governor Polanyi. Okay. So I think that tells us something. Um, you know, when, when we've only had two people, both of whom I, I'm thinking would be derided as not true conservatives or whatever the... I haven't heard a lot of good things said about Norm Coleman in the past few years, yes. Right. Um, I think that I think it does. It, it, it's probably revelatory that those are the two fellows who have managed to win. There's an awful. I mean, we haven't won attorney general. We mm-hmm. haven't won secretary of state. Right. We haven't won auditor. We haven't won anything. Um, much less governor and U.S. Senate. So, so, what do you take away from all that? Well, I take away that we need to, and this is with. Respect for Jeff Johnson, whom, as everyone says, is a very likable individual, and he's a he's plucky, he's a plugger. I I, I think uh, I have no problem supporting him in November. Mm-hmm. Um, but I will tell you, objectively, I think he's a significant underdog to Tim Walls, who I think uh, was clearly the best political candidate for the DFL to nominate. Um, and I I just think that. This, these ideological litmus tests do not play well in Minnesota. And, you know, somebody mentioned Kurt Bills earlier in the show. Um, nothing against the former legislature, legislator, but he had no chance against Amy Klobuchar because nobody knew he was running. And he was so invisible, and he, would, and he couldn't raise any money. And um, I think that did damage down the, down the line on the ticket. So I'm 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 interested because what I hear I hear an undercurrent to what you're saying, and it's very similar to 
the the undercurrent that seemed to be informing the Tim Pawlenty campaign and the case for Tim Pawlenty, which is look, there's there, there's a whole process of electability that the current party infrastructure in terms of caucus convention endorsement is fails to acknowledge and fails to account for and so something needs to be done in order to radically transform how candidates are selected and how republican politics is run in this state if there's any hope of ever securing statewide office again am i reading you correctly on that or do you have any prescriptions that uh, are not currently part of the conversation i'm sympathetic to what you just said um i I don't know that you said it approvingly but well i'm trying to be objective (laughs) right right. no i appreciate that and and i admire the thoughtful approach to all these issues walter um but i am sympathetic to it um i i mean i'm principled Mm-hmm. And I am philosophically well to the right, mm-hmm. but I also think at some point you have to have some degree of pragmatism. If you can't win, it's hard to make any progress. It's this hard is true. To move the ball down the field to any degree. This and is true. I just think we've had a lot of difficulty. We've done well legislatively. Mm-hmm. We've done well in certain congressional districts, but but we have not done well statewide. And I don't know how anyone can argue against that objectively. And the last thing before I go, Walter, is I just wanted to make the point that um, President Trump, whatever else you think about him, his influence, his positive influence on Republican chances, I think ended last night. I think going forward, he's going to, there might be some exceptions, possibly Pete Stauber in the 8th District uh, in uh, northeastern Minnesota. But I think generally he's going to be a negative, as Jamar pointed out, and I don't invariably agree with Jamar on politics, but he's right. The energy is on the left. The energy is with the Democrats. They did greatly outnumber us last night in terms of the people who showed up. And I'm afraid that President Trump, who finished third, by the way, in the Minnesota presidential caucus two years ago, people mm-hmm. forget that. Um, you talk about grassroots. That's the grassroots. He finished third to uh, well, Ryan but Ted, if if you were to if you were to pull those uh, if you were to pull those same voters today, though, that's that you that's you would true. get overwhelming support for Trump. That's true. But I'm saying Trump's not on the ballot now, right. and and so. I just think that the the anti-Trump energy is going to drive turnout. And I'll I'll, I'll close on this note. This is why Jeff Johnson needs money desperately. The Alliance for a Better Minnesota, Mm -hmm. which I believe helped to elect Mark Dayton against Tom Emmer eight years ago with vicious anti-Emmer ads that were terribly misleading and outlandish. Um, But Tom Emmer did not have the money to fight back and to respond. They're going to wrap Donald Trump around Jeff Johnson's neck. And I'm telling you, Walter, Commissioner Johnson, good guy that he is, he needs to be able to respond. Uh, you're not going to find a uh, disagreement or argument from me on that point. Appreciate you calling, Henry. Appreciate you listening to the program. 651-989-5855. We'll be back momentarily. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson. Streaming at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and your iHeartRadio app. We are here 9 to 11 weeknights. It's great having you with us. 651-989-5855, the number to join us. Folks have been doing so all night long. Appreciate that. Appreciate giving your take on the primary election results from last night. 
Brad Ullman takes those calls and produces the program. So along with calling in, there are a couple other options for engaging with us. One of them is Twitter. We do follow the hashtag TCNT. And while I'm doing my show prep, I usually have that up and and kind of scroll through what folks have been saying. And uh, I caught a tweet that stated something regarding fiscal policy and taxes and the economy. And it was from a lefty who posted this. And I wanted to address it because my my response is probably not what either uh, this left-wing listener or you are expecting. So this is what he wrote. He said, "I can," and I assume it's a he. I don't want to presume gender. It's a rhetorical he, okay? Maybe it's a she, maybe it's a Z. I think Z is like the gender-neutral pronoun. I, I don't know. His name's All Your Screens Rick, so... Well, I mean, let's not presume that Rick is inherently male. I mean, let's we live in a new world now. Anything is possible. All right, and maybe he just hasn't, you know, submitted his his name change application to the proper authorities yet, and maybe a judge denied him. I mean, there have been all sorts of circumstances that could develop. At any rate, he writes, I continue to be amazed by how many Republicans and conservatives still believe trickle-down economics works, since it fails no matter how many times they try. You want to cut taxes to starve government? Fine. Own that. But it doesn't help to create jobs or ways or raise wages. And then he posts uh, a link to some labor statistics, which I did not look at. <laughs> I did not look at them. Now, the reason why I did not look at the labor statistics is because they're irrelevant to the point that I want to make and the response that I have to this. Trickle-down economics is a flawed rationale for tax policy. Because it's utilitarian in nature. You know, the the trickle-down economics argument is effectively we should give tax cuts to people, to the wealthy in particular. We should give them tax cuts because they, in turn, will invest in businesses, and those businesses are productive, and they create jobs, and that trickles the income down to the middle class and, and to people who need it, people who are productive. Now, there's a truth to that. Right. I mean, unquestionably, that when you if you if people have more money, if they're able to keep more of the money that they've earned, what are they going to do with it? They're going to do one of two things. There's only two things they can do. They can either save it or they can spend it. And if they spend it, they're consuming, they're engaging with businesses, they're thus fueling jobs and what have you. And if they save it, it's going to be earning some kind of interest, even if it's just in a savings account. But that's not where rich people put their money. They put their money in investments. And investments are, are capital allocated to productive activity. They're investing for the purpose of being profitable. And so that is supporting activity that's actually producing values for real human beings in the economy. Economic value is human value. This is one of the things we talked about recently on the program when I presented my my revised standing rules for the program. Economic value is human value. It represents real human action, real human life expended, real human effort, and it ought to be respected as such. But trickle-down, this argument that, we should give people tax cuts in order to facilitate the trickle down is an inherently flawed argument. And, you know, this tweet 
demonstrates one of the flaws because it puts the onus entirely on being able to demonstrate that a particular tax cut or a person's particular benefit from having received a tax cut resulted in the production of a job. And that is not, that is not a, that's not the reason why we ought to let people have their money. The real argument here is not utilitarian. The real argument is moral. People ought to be able to retain their own money that they have earned because it's their money and they earned it, right? Like this, the, the onus here and the premise that we have adopted by employee, and I say we in a very general sense, because obviously trickle down goes back decades in terms of conservative and Republican rhetoric. But the the premise that we subscribe to when we present trickle-down as a rationale for why we ought to cut taxes is that the onus is on us to demonstrate some sort of social utility to allowing people to keep their money. That is a wrong-headed premise. The reason why you let people keep their money is because you're moral, because you're not a thief, because you don't take other people's stuff, because in the end, it's the right thing to do. That's why you don't take other people's money. That's why you cut taxes, right? Taxation is theft. That's the reason. That's the moral impetus, not trickle down. Now, that said, we live in a world where taxes are a thing. We live in a world where government requires revenue in order to do the things that constituents expect government to do. And so we, we need to bring some sort of process or some sort of uh, matrix of thought, of concepts to, to bear to determine how we're going about deciding just how much we're going to tax, just how much we're going to steal from the taxpayer, right? And so, you know, what should that be? And part of the problem with conservatism, one of the, or, or conservatism as it's currently practiced and currently advocated for in the public discourse, is that all you ever see, and we saw this pan out with the tax cuts last year under Trump and the, the Republicans in Washington, D.C., all you ever see or hear is the case for cutting taxes. And that seems to be all they're ever interested in doing. They're not interested in addressing the other side of the equation, which is spending. Well, and Trump isn't interested in addressing tariffs. He, right. He, everything that, you know, the, the $13 so that... Margaret, the secretary, can start saving for college uh, that Paul Ryan posited when uh, they made the TCGA uh, is being eaten up by tariffs. And that is part of the reason why inflation is rising. That's part of the reason why you're not seeing the gains that you thought you would in recent years. Well, and and that's what happens when you go to utilitarian arguments rather than the moral argument. Because the, the utilitarian case for tax cuts... By, by adopting that and, and accepting that as legitimate, you open yourself up to a utilitarian case for tariffs, which is exactly what's been offered. We're, we're doing these tariffs in order to, you know, we're, the, the trickle down narrative is we should give people tax cuts in order to what? Create jobs, right? We're going to facilitate investment in the economy. It's going to create jobs. Well, that's the exact same utilitarian rationale offered for the tariffs. We need to, impose tariffs in order to create jobs in order to bring mining back to northern minnesota or whatever the case may be in order to facilitate the steel industry and manufacturing here in the good old us of a when when utilitarianism is your 
both both your means and your end, then you're going to circumvent the morality of public policy. And that's where we ought to root ourselves firmly is in the morality, the moral argument. It is immoral to take more money from people than you need in order to affect lawful, rightful, moral, governmental ends, which are in the in the protection and preservation of individual rights. You know, the, the first question that needs to be answered before we can decide how much we're going to tax, the question that needs to be answered is, what is government supposed to do and what have what have we agreed that government is going to do? And then what is that going to take? How much money is that going to take? And then how do we get that money? That's the order of operation that ought to be imposed. And instead, what we find is, you know, on the on the left, they start off with what are we going what are we going to do regardless of how much it's going to cost? And then on the right, we start off with, you know, how, how much can we cut taxes before, but we're not going to address the effect that that has on the debt and the deficit and, you know, the, the, the running up of a bill that future generations are going to have to pay because we're too scared to advocate for cuts in spending. The, and all of this proceeds from focusing on utility and the political effect of utility rather than focusing on the morality of public policy. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name's Walter Atson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Closing argument. My name's Walter Atson. 651-989-5855, the number to get a comment in before the end of the show. Dan in Eden Prairie wants to join us. Appreciate you doing so. Yes, I want to chime in that I appreciate you wanting lower taxes, but taxes are not stealing. Taxes are what grown-ups pay for the government they get. So insightful. That's the whole. That's your whole comment. Just yeah, that. My point is... We need government at some level, and we need taxes to pay. Who says? Who says we need it? You don't want any government at all. You don't want to pay. Well, no. What What I'm suggesting you is what for your military. So wait a minute. It's interesting that you're asking me the question because the entire premise here is that you're going to take my money regardless of how I answer. So it's interesting so, that you'd even be interested in my opinion when you're saying that you're you're going to point a gun at my head or you're going to hire other guys to bring their guns to point at my head to take my money regardless of whether I not uh, how I answer the question. No, you can answer it how you want, but but we're going to come get your money anyway. We want government services, and how do we pay? Who them? wants? I it? don't want government Who services. Who wants it? Right? Who wants it? You want it. And you're going to make you me pay for government it. Government service at all? You don't. But but you don't care what I want, Dan. You don't care what I want. You don't care what I want. If you did, then you wouldn't be forcing me to pay for it. Well, okay. I'll, I'll step back. But do you want a police department in your city? How is that going to be paid for? The, the, again, if you want a police department, and look, I, I understand the point that you're trying to make. And we can we can get down to, to to debating the merits of different government services. But the point that I'm trying to drive you towards is acknowledging the fact that at the nature of taxation is compulsion. That's it is. how it works. And it's compulsion by the majority. 
Right. So, and right, which is stealing from the minority. People who don't agree with how their tax dollars are being spent, too bad, so sad, we're taking your money anyway. That's stealing by definition. It doesn't make it, it's not, no, 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 no. It's not more moral. It doesn't become moral because you had a vote. It doesn't, look, if, if, let's put it on a small scale. You live on a block with 10 neighbors. And there's no other people on the planet. It's just you and 10 other neighbors. If nine of them decide that they want to engage in a particular endeavor and they take a vote, the nine of them, that they're going to come take your money in order to facilitate it, what would you call that? Is that government or is that theft? Well, I would call that government because we live in a democracy. Okay, so how many people, well, hold on, hold on. How many, at what point does it become government and not theft? If it was just two people and they decided that they were going to steal from the other eight, would that be theft? At what point does it become legitimate? That's not the rule of the majority. We don't live in a democracy. So, so, so in other words, you're saying that the, that moral authority is determined by the majority. So you're for lynch mobs. Well, Okay, so you really think that we cannot, as a civilized democracy, impose taxes? Look, the ideal is that we wouldn't. Yes, that is my position. But this this is what I'm trying to drive us towards. How do you fund your government? Just tell me how you would fund your government. We would fund it through voluntary contribution. Okay, well... You're more idealistic than I am. No, I'm not. I'm because b- because the government that I'm talking about, you're, you're thinking of government in modern terms, in terms of everything that government does right now. And when we're talking about ideals, which obviously that's the, the, the context in which we're talking about, it's ideals right now. The government that I am advocating for is one that is limited to the sole purpose of protecting individual rights. And that is a very limited, small function compared to the current expansive bureaucratic nightmare that we're currently in, that, that requires millions and trillions of dollars, depending on the level you're talking about. And if government was actually limited to that purpose, people would see the inherent value in it. You want your rights to be protected. You would pay for it for the same reason that you voluntarily pay for insurance on your house, because it provides an actual benefit to you, an actual value to you. Now that said, we don't live in that world yet. We don't we don't have a level of cultural sophistication that has that presents the opportunity to live in that manner and taxes are a reality. So what in the current moment, the what I'm trying to facilitate is acknowledgement of the fact that when we decide how much we're going to tax, what we are deciding is how much we're going to steal. And by understanding it on those terms, it provides us with the sense of restraint, which currently does not exist in the public discourse. There's a tremendous amount of arrogance that goes into the presumption that we can just take any amount of money out of the economy that we arbitrarily decide. And it's reflected in ideas like those of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez saying we're going to spend $32.6 trillion that's going to come from some magical realm over the course of the next 10 years to fund Medicare for all. No. We need to, there needs to be some sort of restraint on our thinking when it comes to taxation, and that starts by acknowledging it as theft. Okay. I, I'm glad I was a foil for your hyperbole, but taxes are not theft. Okay. Are you've, you've, but you've, they are, are shades of gray. Now, how is it gray? 50 of them, and they're beating us for it. What's your definition of theft, Dan? Every citizen will have to pay some level of taxes. Why? 
right? Why? And who's going to make them? Well, Why do they have to? I mean, you think government could run on zero funds? No, ever? that's not the question. The question is, how do you get those funds? In the realm of reality, physically, how do you obtain them? And the answer is at the point of a gun. Ultimately, I appreciate the call, Dan. Appreciate you joining the program. Ultimately, if you do not pay your taxes, men with literal guns are going to come for you. That is what theft looks like. That is not what the community looks like. That's not what a neighborhood looks like. That's what theft looks like. Taxation in its fundamental nature is theft. And we need to acknowledge that in order to begin a thoughtful and restrained and deliberative consideration of how to spend public funds. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 1035 FM. We'll be back 9 to 11 tomorrow. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com.